morning. How are you guys? Great to see you all. And uh, if you could turn in your Bibles to Revelation. Okay, Revelation. This is part 14 and it's called A Voice to the Churches. And Revelation 1, 10 to 11. Put up your hand if you have a King James Version today. Yep, yep. New King James. Should be. I think it's in the King, New King James. Um, oh, good morning. <laughs> um, there is... Uh, an addition in the King James that's not in most modern translations. So I, I'm going to read from my translation, but add in what's added in the King James. That's how I correct modern translations, anything that's not in. And things that are in the King James that shouldn't be there, I also <laughs> remove them from as well. So um, let's have a look at this. Revelation 1, 10 to 11. And it says, On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And this voice said, tell me if your versions say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Yep. Okay, that's in the King James. And it's in the original text as well. So it's important that that part, write that into your Bibles if it's not there now. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay, so what I'm going to do today is I want to break this down and, and have, a, have a good look at what's being talked about here. But before I do, let's pray. Can't forget to pray. Lord, I just ask you right now to uh, speak through me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I have no confidence in my own ability to uh, preach the word, but I know that but with your power, I can preach and, and say something today that is going to have an impact on every heart here. And so I completely hand this sermon over to you. This is your message. This is your church. You, you said you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So give me a message that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against. I pray for every heart here to receive the word that is spoken today that they'll be receptive and that they'll uh, receive it with gladness and joy of heart as we uh, look deeply into your word. And I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord's Day. If I was to say to a Seventh-day Adventist, what's the Lord's Day? What would they say? Mm. Okay. Uh, what do a lot of people, how many Christians do you know that says Saturday is the Lord's Day? There's a lot of people I know that say it. Um, but what does the Bible say? Every day, yes, we're in the... We're living in the time... Well, in the Lord's day, aren't we? Actually, we're in the uh, perpetual Sabbath now. Um, the Sabbath rest for the people of God. doesn't mean we rest from our physical labor, but we rest spiritually knowing that we're in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Mark 16.2. Let's just turn there. I've got a few scriptures, so just keep your Bibles open. Mark 16.2. It says, Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Which day was this? It was the first day of the week. It was a Sunday. Let's go to Mark 16, 9, just a little bit further on. When Jesus rose early on the 
first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Let's go to Matthew 28.1. Matthew 28.1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at, for the, or look at the tomb. So which day was this? Sunday, first day of the week. And it was very early too, at dawn. Luke 24.1. And it says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. John 21. Early on the... This is 21. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Okay, John 20:19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, so when did they meet? On the evening of the first day of the week. So that was a meeting time. It became from that point on. Acts 20, verse 7. Let's go there. And it says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Which day? The first day. They came together. Do you know what the Sabbath was for, for the Jews who were Christians at that time? It was witnessing day. They'd go into the synagogues. They would go out and witness. It was time of work. They would get out there and witness and try to win people to Christ. Sunday, they would meet as a church and celebrate together in memory of Christ, in, in memory of the day that he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 16.2 On the first day of every week, each, of, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, why did he say on the first day of the week, set aside money? Because that was the day that the church met together. And he said, well, what, when you all get together, gather the, put your money together for that day. So that was a, a, an indication that the first day of the week was a time when they came together. Now, I'm, I, I teach like this simply because there is a lot of cults in the world that teach different. I'm not saying Seventh-day Adventist is a pure cult, but they do have some cultish doctrines. Um, one of them is to force Christians to worship on a Saturday. I say worship every day. Amen? And I think if the, if the disciples gathered on the first day of the week to break bread, let's break bread on the first day of the week. And they actually used to do it because the first day of the week back in the, those days was a working day. Sunday wasn't a weekend like we have it. Sunday was a working day. So they had to gather like at about 6 a.m. so everyone could, you know, shit, break bread together and then they'd go off to work. It's like us gathering together for breakfast so we could break toast together. Toast and Vegemite. <laughs> but um, so... That's why it was, and Jesus rose very early in the morning, so they would meet very, very early in the morning. Now, Justin Martyr, who's heard of Justin Martyr? Yeah? He was a, a very early disciple. He was probably only one generation removed from the actual apostles. Probably not even, because he, he was just, uh, they reckon John, uh, the apostle John died in around 95, 96 AD. So not very far away if he was born in 110, but it would have been at least one generation removed. He's the first Christian author of the sub-apostolic age. The very first Christian author. So if you read Justin Martyr, you're reading the first writings, and I'm reading Justin Martyr right at the moment, and he is mind-blowing. I'm thinking, wow. You know, Mozart was one of the first pianists 
to compose for the piano. And when you listen to his music, you go, wow, <laughs> he's first to this instrument and look at what he did. You know, sometimes the firsts are the best. You know? And Justin Martyr, he's got some incredible writings. He's the very first Christian author of just after the apostles. The founder of theological literature, so the study of the nature of God. He was the founder. He began theology. Now this is no, you know, small man in the sense of in the eyes of God. This man was used by God in a powerful way, yet we don't know much about him. We don't get much preached from his works. And he has got some absolutely astounding, brilliant, mind-blowing works. You've got to read them, especially his dialogue with Trypho the Jew. Must read, absolute must read. Um, founder of the theological literature and the earliest apologist. So he, he was the, one of the earliest defenders of the faith. And he actually wrote a first apology and a second apology uh, to the Roman Empire, you know, to Caesar sort of thing. So he was right out there. He was a very out there. And, and, and of course, he was going to get martyred in those days. Like he was too aggressive as a Christian for those times. Um, and he spoke about Sunday worship on page 186 of volume one and when I read it I was like wow there it is first first author first theologian first apologist close right there with not far away from the disciples used to spend time with the disciples of the actual disciples or of the apostles and uh, he wrote it in his book the first apology a book which scholars say is unquestionably genuine and his most famous writings are the first apology, the second apology, dialogue with Trypho, a Jew, uh, and the discourse to the Greeks and a few others. There's a few other books as well that are really good. But uh, So Justin Martyr wrote this. He said, but Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. I like how he... He didn't bring up what my, I would have said straight away. Well, Jesus rose on the Lord's day, then that's the day, or the first day, that's the day we should celebrate. He didn't even say that first. The day where he, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made, and made the world the first day of the week. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. For he was crucified on the day before that Saturn. So he was crucified before the day of Saturday. And on the day after that of Saturn, which is Saturday, it's just Rome in, um, that's how the Romans would say it, which is the day of the sun, Sunday. Uh, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things which he has, we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So he's sort of setting it in stone. This is how we do it, and this is how we have been doing it. I think he had a bit of foresight to know that maybe that's going to be questioned in the future, that whether we should worship on a Sunday or not. Now, I have had emails sent to me, and, and I bring up things because I get all sorts of stuff flooding to me. Because we have an international ministry, the videos are getting out there, I get people you know, saying, you know, the Harlot Church preaches on a Sunday or has church on a Sunday. And I'm like, what the Harlot Church? What? And, and trying to condemn preaching on a Sunday. I'm thinking, well, John Wesley used to preach every day. When he would get up, he was preaching every morning at 7 a.m., you know, I don't think I don't think resting is even uh, even on a Saturday. Uh, well, actually, if if preaching on a Sunday is is condemned, then they shouldn't be preaching on a Saturday if they're going to follow the Sabbath, because that's work. They shouldn't be setting up chairs for a church service. 
They shouldn't even be turning on light switches. That's how some get that fanatical. They leave the lights on all night so they can get up, right? Is that religiousness? Is that crazy religiousness that's gone too far, we've taken it too extreme? And is it come from not really reading the Bible and taking a literal understanding and trying to twist it and mold it into something that it's not? You know? And I, don't let anyone condemn you for the day in which you celebrate or uh, come together and, as a fellowship. Don't let anyone ever do that. Now, this loud voice like a trumpet, Revelation 1.10. Let's just quickly read it again to get it back in context. Revelation 1.10, and it says this. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard a, a, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, who is that loud voice? I'll just say it straight out. The voice is clearly the Lord Jesus, as he tells us um, who he is in Revelation 1.11, which is the very next verse. If you're reading the King James, it, it will tell you immediately, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And they'll say, no, that's referencing God. Oh, really? Let's go down a bit further. Revelation 1.13 called him the Son of Man. Who called himself the Son of Man? Not me. <laughs> my, my fan. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. In Revelation 1.13, if you look down to there, and it says this, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Let's go a little bit further. Revelation 1.17 to 18, he reveals himself as the one that was dead and is now alive. Now, who is the one that was dead and is now alive? Jesus. So Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Um, he was, and if we read 1.17 to 18, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet though dead then he placed his right hand on me and said do not be afraid i am the first and the last now could the first and the last be anybody but god could you say a creation is the first and the last you couldn't because that's a reference to a, uh, to a deity who is eternal that's what it's referencing i am the eternal one the pre-existent one the one that always existed and I was saying to Tessa the other day, and I've, I've said it to you, I'm sure, a number of times. People say, well, who created God? I said, well, God is clearly revealed, the Bible says, in the things he's made. Has he not made an eternal universe that goes on forever? And no matter how far you go in any direction, and if you go that way, that way, that way, it doesn't matter which way you go. If you keep on going and keep on going, and keep, you will never find an end. Because if you found an end, you'd have to ask what's on the other side. <laughs> Who used to think about that sort of stuff as a kid and it would sort of do your head in? Anyone? Well, God is eternal. He, he, he's just like his universe that he created. He created that so we can say that's what God's like. The universe is, goes on forever and ever and ever in any direction you go. That's so that we can get an idea of that's the eternal nature of God. He goes on forever and ever and ever. He's all, he will never, ever end and he's never, ever, ever had a beginning. Does that do your head in? Doesn't the universe do your head in thinking about it? So why do we have a problem with that? Why does people say, no, well, God can't be like his universe? Well, he is. He did it for our benefit. So we can just say, okay, I accept that. My finite mind cannot comprehend that. It just does me in every time I think about it. So I just accept it. He's eternal. But you know what? When we get our imperishable bodies and become eternal creatures, guess what we're going to be able to understand? is we're going to be able to understand eternity. And then we'll go, ah, of course, that's how. You know, 
But even then, it will probably still do my head in. If I was Dave, I could probably understand it a bit better. I could break it down or something. That's right, yeah, that's right. And I said, and the reason we don't understand eternal concepts is because everything we do has a beginning and an end. We start a meal, we finish a meal. We start a walk, we finish a walk. We get in the car and drive somewhere, we come back. You know, we fill a tank with petrol, it empties really quick and got to fill it again. And You know what I mean? <laughs> everything has a start and a finish. But God doesn't. So, yeah, how can we possibly grasp that? Now, Revelation 4, 1 to 3. So, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Hmm. Wouldn't you just run straight through that door? Wouldn't you just like, let me in. I'm going through. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet. See, who's, who was this? The voice from Jesus who was spoken about in Revelation 1. Uh, like a trumpet, and that voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. That just destroys preterism right there, after this, afterwards. It hasn't happened in, the book of Revelation could not possibly have been fulfilled in 70 AD. There's too many things that can't be fulfilled in 70 AD. It doesn't fit. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of a jasper, and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne, I'll just read a bit more, were, were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on the head. Wow, so this is royalty. We're here now looking at the king of kings. And it was the voice like a trumpet who said, come up here, gave the authority. You cannot enter the king's chamber unless he says you can enter. If he holds his scepter and points it towards you, you can come in. If he does not do that, you cannot come in. So that command could not have been from an angel or anyone else. It had to come from the king of kings. It had to come from Jesus. So that voice was on a throne, the trumpet. Have I finished the case for who that voice is? I think so. And seven churches, Revelation 1.11 Revelation 1.11 says, and this is the King James, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And these seven churches were located in Asia Minor, which is today modern Turkey. We're just going to quickly have a look at these churches. I'm going to go more in depth with every single church as we study the, the letters to the churches. But these were not the only seven churches in Asia Minor. Who knows that? As Colossae was located in, within Asia Minor and he wasn't, the church of Colossae wasn't on that list. And I believe two reasons these seven churches were chosen was, one, between them all they cover all the extremes of Christian life, uh, both good and evil. That's one one reason I, I think it is, it's just these seven churches seem to have encapsulated everything we uh, as a church would go through, all the extremes. Uh, and also, according to tradition, the Apostle John founded these seven churches. So it was personal to John. So Jesus spoke to him to say, hey, these seven churches that you founded, you, want, you should say this to them. Write this letter to them. You hand it to them. So there could be more reasons than that, but that's all I've got time for today, so I'm going on. Now, Ephesus means desirable. Keep that in mind. I want, we're going to look at the names of each, of what each of the names of the churches mean. 
And it was the city which held one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. Um, in Acts 19, Paul was so effective at soul winning in Ephesus that the silversmiths of Ephesus created a riot to stir up the Ephesian people in an effort to turn them back to their gods so that they would not lose their business of fashioning idols. Who remembers that story in the book of Acts? They started a riot and they, they couldn't find Paul, luckily, because they would, would have probably tore him to shreds. But they ended up shouting, you know, Artemis, the great god, or something like that for, for two hours. They stirred up quite a scene. So it was a very, very passionate city, a passionate city after, after gods. So desirable could have meant many things to them where that came from. I did a lot of searching trying to find out where they got desirable from, whether it was their desiring of gods or desiring of luxury or whatever. I couldn't find anything. So I will hopefully find something a bit more out of that. But the key scripture in relation to that is Revelation 2.4. You have forsaken your first love. Now, what that means, uh, why they've forsaken it, I'm not sure, but it could be turning to other idols, turning back like a Solomon. Solomon was very devoted to God in the early days, and he got led astray, didn't he? He went off and was uh, seeking other gods. But um, it could be many reasons. What reasons can you think of why people would forsake the love of God these days? What are some things you think? Pleasure. Um, money, yep. Hobbies get in the way. Oh, I can't do that because I've got this hobby on Sunday now, and I, so I can't go to church. There's lots of reasons. If we, if I got a blackboard here, I could write down a heap of reasons. But let's keep going. Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, and myrrh was used as a perfume um, for embalming, as in John 1930, 1939, where um, Jesus was em, uh, embalmed. They brought spices and myrrh to do the embalming. They didn't find Jesus. though. It's an anointing oil. It deodorizes clothes and in Esther 2.12. It's a cosmetic in John 19.39 and in the New Testament, myrrh is associated with death. Myrrh was their chief export of the city in ancient times. That was the main thing that they exported. They made most of their money in that city from. Uh, and myrrh simply means death. Key scripture is Revelation 2.9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, Pergamum means height elevation. They're known for the creating of the medium for writing the parchment. They were really known for their parchments because uh, during a great battle, all the um, papyrus was removed from the city. They couldn't get papyrus to do their writing, so they had to create a new material to write upon, and parchments was that. So it held the second largest library in the known world at the time, some 200,000 parchments. I didn't write 200,000 correctly. So they were very scholarly, weren't they? They, they wrote a lot. They were, they were into writing. They were um, uh, ahead of, the, ahead of the, the rest of, the, of, the, of that known world by a long shot. People that had large libraries were normally the more affluent in, in those places at those times. So key scripture there is Revelation 2.13. I know where you live and where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. So Pergamum, there's a lot of conspiracy theories based around that scripture. Who could imagine? You know, where Satan has his throne. Now, that I've, I've heard so many different directions in relation to that scripture. We will talk about it and find out as I, as I study it with you um, what different people say about it. But the Lord says Pergamum is 
where Satan has his throne. So if someone's going to say, where's the Antichrist going to come from? Well, maybe Pergamum is the place because Jesus says, there it is. <laughs> Something to think about. Thyatira means a perfume, a sacrifice of labor. Uh, it was famous for its dyeing and was the center of the indigo trade. More guilds are known in Thyatira than any other contemporary city in the Roman province of Asia. Inscriptions mentions the following. Wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers and bronzesmiths. So it was a very bustling, busy place. Probably a place of much labor. Key scripture, Revelation 2.20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So that's something interesting. Now I'm going to put this all together in a second. Sardis means Prince of Joy. Its importance was due first to its military strength, second to its situation on an important highway leading from the interior uh, to the Aegean coast, and thirdly to its commanding the wide and fertile plains of the Hermas. Now, the key scripture here is Revelation 3.1, and it says, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, I'm just trying to reflect on that a little bit, and I think I want to stop there just for a moment. Is there churches out there today that from how you can see it, like especially in the West, they've got these reputations of being these really alive churches, but they're so doctrinally inadequate um, and living so below the standards that God set for us that, we've, that they've become dead? Do you know what I mean? They're not really following Jesus Christ. They love the Sunday morning entertainment and they, they do it really, really well. They put on a great show and they make a lot of money, but they're not alive. They're not alive in Christ. And how do you get alive in Christ? If you love your life, you will lose it. But if you lose it, for my sake, you will find it. You've got to die. You've got to die. You've got, you've got to die so he can live in you. So the person of Rob must be no more. Jesus Christ must fill me in every single way. Amen? And that's the key to life eternal. Actually, you, you've got to be born again, the Bible says. That's what born again is, is dying to the old self and being alive in Christ. And there's no other way into the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. So make sure that people don't know you as a really happy-go-lucky person, a really alive person, but they're dead spiritually. You don't want to be dead spiritually. Make sure you never lose your first love. Amen? So Philadelphia means love of a brother. The locality of Philadelphia was subject to constant earthquakes, which in the time of Strabo rendered even the town walls of Philadelphia unsafe. The expense of reparation was constant and hence perhaps the, po the poverty of the members of the church as the key scripture says revelation 3 8 i know that you have little strength yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name so this church was a church undergoing constant persecution it was like it was a church having regular earthquakes they had little strength but they kept the word and uh, therefore, they, it's probably the most esteemed of all the seven churches. Who knows that? Yeah. Make sure that we, this church, reflects the Church of Philadelphia. Laodicea means just people. 
righteous people, just people. Key scriptures, Revelation 3.16. So he, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Who knows that's the key scripture of Laodicea, yeah? And scholars have done some research and excavations um, uh, have been made of those sites and they've discovered some interesting things but scholars believe that this metaphor is taken from the discovery that the water supply in the city of Laodicea was lukewarm as it was drawn from the hot springs at nearby Hierapolis and by the time it got to Laodicea it was lukewarm so they pumped hot water through pipes by the time it got there through aqueducts by the time it got there it was lukewarm and it's like oh great good for nothing <laughs> I get in it and in my bath and it's cold within minutes of getting in, you know what I mean? Um, the, the imagery of the Laodicea and aqueducts uh, suggests not that hot is good and cold is bad, but that both hot and cold water are useful. So I'd rather you be hot or cold. Because, you know, who knows, you know, if you want a, a beautiful glass of water, you want a nice cold glass of water, unless you like hot water. But, um, but you normally we want a nice glass of cold water, I do anyway. Or at least room temperature. <laughs> but um, so cold is good too. But you can take it in many ways. And that's what I like about Jesus when he speaks. You can um, say, well, I don't want to be cold in my faith. I want to be hot in my faith. That's how most of us read it. Is that right? But I also want to be useful in my faith. So if coldness creates use, I will be that. I'll be hot as well. But not necessarily. You don't want to be a cold person. That's what, you know. So, sorry? And you don't want to be hot-headed. Yeah, you don't want to be... Because a lot of people th yeah, think if you're hot that you're intense and angry. Yeah, you don't want to be like that. God is amazing. I, I looked these words, the meanings of the, of the churches up because I knew there was more to it. And so if Ephesus means desirable and Smyrna means death and Pergamum means height elevation, Thyatira means a perfume which is a sacrifice of labor, Sardis means prince of joy. Philadelphia means love of a brother. And Laodicea means just people. Then the seven churches reads like this. A desirable death will elevate the sacrifice of the prince of joy for the love of his brothers to make them a just people. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So just as we... I remember Dave. Do you remember Dave did a, a message about the... Um, the names of the genealogies from Adam up until Noah, and it had this, it's this beautiful sentence that, that spoke of Jesus coming. The same, same is here about the seven churches reads, there is desirable death will elevate the sacrifice of the prince of joy for the love of his brothers, which is what he did it for, and make them a just people. That is a powerful thing, and that's just more evidence that this book is not just some random collection of notes made by some crazy guys 2,000 years ago. But this is a very, very well thought through book by a very, very powerful, powerful God. Who knows that? Who reads it regularly enough to get that sort of impact from it? Amen. All right, so uh, that's all I prepared today, and I haven't really prepared much more yet. Just before I finish, I'm just going to ask God just to give me a, a final word. Lord, just give me a word now just to speak into everyone's heart and ask this in your wonderful name. Help me by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay. So I believe just I believe for this church what God wants to see happening in us as a people is us to, to pursue God with every ounce of passion that we have. Who who could say, put up your hand if you pursue God with all your passion? There's not one hand going up. At least I can say you're an honest bunch. Yeah. What does that say to us? Are we living below what Christ would have us live? Yeah. Where would you where do you believe God would have you live? At what level in him? Could you say that I compare to the Apostle John or I compare to the Apostle Peter? So I ask you this question. Do you have the same Holy Spirit that they had? So we have the same power in the sense, well, whether we have the actual baptism of the power is another thing. The reason I say that is Leonard Ravenhill made a very, very important point. He said 75 million Christians in America claim to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, yet we're the rottenest nation on earth. If 75 million Christians in America claim to have the power, yet they're the rottenest nation on earth, what is going on? I believe if the 12 disciples with that power, the 12 apostles, if they walked into America, they would turn America upside down in no time. Charles Finney got the power, and in one year, 100,000 people came to know Jesus. 100,000 people. And not just came to know him, but passionately living for him and going out and spreading the word. They, they said that Charles Finney, if it wasn't for his ministry, America wouldn't have been the Christian nation it became. He single-handedly lifted the, the, the holiness and the, the devotion of that country up to that point where they were known as the God's country. You know what I mean? The country set apart for him. They're, are they known that way anymore, though? They're not. They're falling. Yet there's 75 million people that believe, Christians, Christ, claim Christians who believe they have the power, yet what's happening in America? How many Christians would you say in Australia claim to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, claim to have the power that Apostle John had and Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul and all, all the greats that we know about and read about in the Bible? How many people in Australia would claim to have that power? Yet Australia free falls into hell. How many people do you personally know that if they died today would go straight to hell? How many people? How many people incredibly close to you? Could be your partner, your life partner. Could be your children. And they've they don't want to know about it. They don't want anything to do with it. They are going to hell if they died today. I, I, just, I just have this real burden on me that I'm going I'm to one day wake up and I'm going to stand before Jesus and he's going to say, Rob, I gave you not only the knowledge, but I also gave you the insight to know how to pray and how to Pray hard enough, to, and I gave you the time to do it. We've all got the time to do it. Actually, we've all got the same amount of time to do it. <laughs> it's what we do with our time. 
And I don't want to get before Jesus. And he says, Rob, I, I gave you so much time, yet you didn't pray. You didn't take your Christian life seriously. You agreed with, like, I agree with myself, I suppose, when I come to church. I agree with myself. I agree with those that minister from the pulpit here. But I go home and I forget about it. Who knows what I'm talking about? So easy to forget about it. So easy to preach about it. I have to tell you, this is the easy part. This is the easy part. But to, to have it affect us to the point that it changes us and it changes our habits, it changes our disciplines, it gets us up in the morning when we just want to sleep and the, power and the, the, the burden for souls wakes you even though you desperately want to sleep but you will get up instead of sleep. It's got to be that strong. If you just keep on sleeping, you're sleeping people in the hell where they will never find rest again. And yet the church goes, I agree. Not just this church, all churches. Unless you're in those churches that don't believe there's a hell. Does the Bible talk about hell? Is it a hard doctrine? Just because it's a hard doctrine, just because it doesn't feel nice and stuff, I still preach about it. You know why? Because there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be spending a long, long time there. And it would have been better that they hear me speak about it, even if they want to slander me for it, than me not speak about it and they end up there. Actually, if I don't speak about it, I'm going to be judged for not speaking about it because God's going to hold teachers much more accountable than any other Christian. If I claim to be a teacher, if I claim to get up here and teach, I better teach the full doctrine. You didn't know how much trouble your dad's in, did you, Tess? You didn't know how much trouble your dad's in. Did you? <laughs> when I say trouble, trouble if. Trouble if I don't get it right. If I don't teach right, if I don't live right. And guys, when it comes down to it, we're all called to a ministry of reconciliation. And God's going to say, show me, I gave you that talent, what did you do with it? Show me, have you turned that one talent into two? Show me the other one. And if you go, I buried it, you know, that, that, it's, this, he said that for our benefit. He said, I place upon you, I bestow upon you the power to win souls, Daniel. And it's upon you now. That's your job. While you live on earth, that's your first and foremost job. Everything else is second to that. That's your job. Okay, you, you're a car salesman. Or what, you're not a car salesman. You're a, um, in the crash repair. right? But you're first and foremost a soul winner. A fisherman, a fisher of men. And he's going he's to ask him an accounting. What did you do with it? Show me your souls. Show me the souls. You know, this is what made me start this ministry because God was putting it on me. If I don't show souls, if I've got nothing to show for my life, I'm in big trouble. I want to please my Lord. I want to please him. I want to get up there and I want to see him with such a big smile on his face. And oh, Rob, you did a great job. I just, that's what I want to hear. That's worth more than a billion dollars. Someone had a billion dollars in one hand, or not in one hand, in one big truck or whatever. And, and Jesus saying, well done. I would go for the well done every time. Who, who wouldn't hear? Yeah, billion dollars. But well done. You know, I would love him to just say, come and sit with me on my throne. Oh, mate, 
That's where it's at. That is what life's about. Guys, aim yourself at that. That's your direction. That's what you should live for each and every day. Let it get you up in the morning. Let it keep you up at night. Let it get you in the Bible. Let it get you to the point where you wisely reach out to people at the right time. You know, just yesterday, and I was telling Dave last night, I, I um, was at a BP in Paralawi. Um, and this guy, I, I, I went in there to buy a coffee, and this guy came walking past, and I looked at him, he looked at me, and we just sort of went like that and walked on, you know, those sort of situations. And then he came out, and his car was parked right near mine, and he looked at me and said, do I know you? And I said, well, you probably do. I'm, you might do. You know, you look familiar to me. Anyway, he only looked familiar to me because he's a brother in the Lord. And he's an Assyrian from Assyria. I said, so you're a Christian? And he goes, yes. My family's been Christian since day dot, right back. Their, their heritage goes right back to Jesus. 2,000 years of Christian heritage. It's wonderful to meet a man like that. And he's a beautiful man. I only spoke to him for about five minutes. He says, everyone in my village is dead. ISIS has wiped them all out. Killed them all. He says, my f some of my family escaped. My uncle got killed. A number of others got killed. And in the most terrible way, in the most terrible, horrific way you can imagine, all of them, and he escaped. He said a few of them escaped. They got in their car. They had five minutes. They couldn't get, go back to get their cloak. They got down from the roof into the car and off they went. They saw him coming. Did Jesus say that? That's for pro prophetic fulfillment. And um, I gave him a big hug. But <sighs> you know, if we don't do something soon, I'm afraid that we're going to lose so many souls. And I, think, I don't think it hurts us enough. And we shouldn't be getting to heaven and, and getting hurt there. We shouldn't be. He's going to wipe our tears away there. We should have some tears to be wiped away. I don't think we cry enough for the people. Think of one loved one. Think of one loved one, the most dearest person in your life. Think of them and, the, and knowing that they don't know Jesus. Now imagine that same person that you dearly love burning forever. Just try to visualize it. Shut your eyes. Visualize it. See that person in flames burning and knowing they will never, ever see the light of day again. Now, if that vision doesn't wake you up in the morning, if that vision doesn't get you up in the morning, then you've got a cold stone, cold heart. And you need a new heart. You need a heart of flesh. You need something to change in here. You need the Holy Spirit to come upon you and move you. So you can start to pray like the disciples of old. So you could start to be a real Christian, not these fake flimsy Christians that gets up and the first thing in the morning they do is check their, you know, Instagrams. Lay there with the phone open. Anyone been guilty of that? We should be on our knees to the Lord, crying out for these people that we're never going to see again for all eternity if we don't do something. And prayer, who knows prayer? Who believes in prayer? Put up your hand if you believe in prayer. Who knows that prayer can change things? Prayer can change things. 
The reason why we don't see many things changed by prayer is because we don't pray. Or if we pray, we pray so weakly, we pray without so much faith, we, we lack that drive to pray and beseech God and beseech God and beseech God. When I heard of John G. Lake, he went into a man who had, or a woman who had, like a, she was dying, she was on a deathbed, and he prayed, and he knew the power of God because he'd seen it work, and he prayed. And 12 hours he prayed and nothing happened. And he came back the next day and another eight hours and then the, the healing came. See, he knew the promises in the Bible will stand true. I just got to stand true with them. I would have gone in there in my current state and I would have gone, oh, Lord, please heal her. No healing, all right. Good luck. I'm honest. I'll tell you honestly. I would have prayed probably a bit longer than that. But you know what I mean? Does that sound familiar? Would you have stayed there 12 hours and prayed until the breakthrough came? John G. Lake did. And he got the breakthrough because God honors that. I better stop. All right. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we give you praise and we give you glory. For you're a glorious God. Lord, we need, we need you to really move upon your people because we're first to admit that we're not anywhere near where we should be and we know you've got a lot for us to do and we need to have our life change radically so that we can get the fire in our bellies to live this Christian life the way that we're supposed to live it. Please, Lord, help us. Please, Lord, help us to be those people that you created us to be. Help us to be those people that you're one day going to say to us, well, da- well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Lord, we want to live for those words. We want to work towards those words. We want to live the Christian life the way we're supposed to live it so that on the day of judgment we won't be found wanting, but that you will uh, be pleased with everything that we've done here on earth. So, Lord, we ask, we're asking you to... Uh, not just do a work now and so that we walk out of here and forget all about it, but that this message will resonate in us for many uh, days to come and keep us strong and passionate and powerful in you so that we can make a difference on this planet. Lord, I don't believe anyone in this room was just born into this life just by random chance. But everyone was born and has a specific reason for their existence, that you've, you've got something so important for them to do. And I pray that every one of, one of these people here today will know exactly what it is and that they'll live according to that and that their life will become so uh, fulfilling and uh, mean so much that it will get them up in the morning and keep them up at night and it will get them reading the word of God like they've never read it and that make them and cause them to become diligent harvesters, I pray. So I pray this in your wonderful name. And be with us today as we go, go across to Bongiorno's and have a lunch together. And may you bless that time of fellowship. And uh, may you bless everyone here through this week and guard and protect them. Put your angels around them all week long, Lord. Cover them in your precious blood and bless them abundantly. And I pray this in your wonderful name. 